0: The Dental Download Podcast is your source for insight into dental school, conversations with dentists, specialists, and leaders in the industry. With new episodes every Monday morning, I'm your host, Haley Schultz. Let's get into this week's episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Dental Download Podcast. This week, we have a topic that I think is super, super important for us dental students to learn about as early as possible and become more familiar with, and that is taxes. Taxes as a dental practice owner. So Morgan Hammond joins us this week to share some insight into When you would start working with a tax accountant and the difference between having the tax accountant in your team versus your own financial planner versus a financial planner for your actual business versus what you'd have a lawyer for when it comes to buying and selling a dental practice. Really just another great episode when it comes to things to do with dental business. But before we get into that episode with Morgan, I did want to quickly recap this past week As you could imagine, not too much happened academically because we had Thanksgiving. Um, If you're listening in another country, Thanksgiving in America was this past Thursday, November 25th. And I just had lab on Monday from 2 to 5 where I was able to complete a few more steps of what we're working on is mounting an impression cast of a tooth that's going to get made into a crown, basically. So we mounted our crown-prepped um, mandible, and then we're also mounting the maxilla on an articulator. We had to saw down the cast to make a die of the specific tooth 230 and kind of trim that die so that the margins were really clear as if you were sending all this to a dental lab. And then we also started the process for milling them through these scanning systems so we can kind of compare traditional conventional way of doing things to the more modern and fast and enjoyable way of doing things, which is digital dentistry. And this upcoming week, I have one more day of Sim Lab and then a practical on Wednesday. I have a standardized patient interaction on Thursday and diagnostic mounting on Tuesday, as well as a case study for my diagnostic radiology class. So pretty busy early week, but... Thursday and Friday should be pretty light and I'm not going to be doing too, too much for school. I'm going to try to really... Push myself Monday through Wednesday to do a lot of studying because the following week, starting December 6th, is when our finals begin. That week we have three finals, and then the following week we have six finals. So I'm going to try to do a lot of studying early this coming week for those exams, and then the following week will also be a ton of studying since there'll be six upcoming after that. But this week, um, really a lot of school, and really the rest of the semester. A bit of a step back from clinical things and more focused on those lecture classes and studying and watching lectures and reviewing and making study guides and trying to connect all these concepts so that I can perform well on our exams that will be coming up in December. And next week's episode, I want to let you know what to look forward to, is going to be a solo episode. I thought it would be good timing with everyone approaching finals, and it is how to make it through a tough week or a busy week, whatever you want to call it. Just some of my tips for time management, for stress relief, for, I guess, in general, like also letting you know what kind of a crazy week can look like in dental school. I can kind of reflect on some of my tougher weeks and what went well, what didn't, and what I do now compared to first year. So that's going to be next week's episode, solo episode, and then getting into December, we're going to have a mix of guests and solo episodes as usual. So let's get into this week's episode with Morgan All About Taxes.
1: Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
0: Hi, everyone. We have another guest here today, and I'm going to let Morgan introduce himself.
1: Hi, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Uh, My name is Morgan Hammond. I'm a a CPA, uh, co-founder and president of HD Accounting Group. And we do uh, financial accounting and tax planning for privately owned dental practices uh, across the country. So about 500 clients in just about every state. And our mission is to take care of dentists that uh, enjoy being dentists and own their business and want to know that the accounting's being done uh, correctly every month and want some visibility on on their practices profit performance each month and then of course uh stay on top of the taxes uh which includes tax planning you know so we can plan ahead uh make sure we're not leaving any money on the table for the government and then no surprises <laughs> your end is a uh, is our our, our big kind of overriding objective. So, but yeah, that's that's who I am and and what we do, and I'm real happy to be here.
0: Yeah. Thank you for your time. So before we get into some of your advice for dental students or new dentists, could you just give some background on why your accounting firm works specifically with dentists? Where did that mission kind of come from for you?
1: Sure. So I I co-founded the firm with my dad, Ken, back in 2009. And we always had envisioned, we, we wanted a, to be business oriented. You know, we, we never wanted to be just out there doing, you know, personal returns, you know, knocking out 1040s, like an H&R Black kind of firm. We wanted to be business advisors and and we always wanted to, to have a specific niche. And just through a bit of circumstance and, and luck, um, we were working with a number of dentists and we really, it felt like a really good fit. And so kind of early on, about 2010, 2011, we, we just went all in on dental and focused just exclusively on that niche. And that's honestly, as a CPA, that's the only way I'll do, I would want to do public accounting. Uh, because when you're dialed in on a very specific niche, you're just in such, you're, your depth of knowledge is very deep for a narrow segment of the tax paying you know, business owner population. So we're just in a much better position to help help people realize more profit uh, from their business. And then also when it comes to time for tax, you know, we just, we know, we really know what works, you know, for this one kind of narrow segment of the tax paying public. But yeah, getting into to dental, it was uh, just a bit of a bit of luck, and and realizing it was an opportunity, and and seizing on it. And I just I, I wouldn't do it any other way.
0: That's great. I think that everyone, if they're going to be going through an accountant for their practice, it's really important to find someone that specializes in dental, like you guys.
1: Yeah, certainly. You know, it. Um, I, I can't imagine being a CPA, and you've got just the scattershot of clients and so like who am i talking with next oh they have a dry cleaner all right well i just talked to whoever to car a lot like how do you even know how do you even know what what their their metrics are, are supposed to be and i think the the sort of the general cpas out there that do had that do work that way they're mainly going to be a tax shop you know they're, they're just going to be cranking out tax returns during the year because they, you know, how, how do they really know how to advise on business profitability if they're not just in the trenches, you know, with their clients all year, kind of just realizing, you know, not only what their financials look like, but what they're going through and what the proper financials are supposed to look like. And if something is off, you know, how to diagnose and fix that. So that that's, I think, what we're, we're really different from the, the, kind of the tax chop shop, as I sometimes think of it, where they're just cranking out tax returns uh, for for half the year and then kind of twiddling their thumbs in the fall. Uh, Definitely not how we do it.
0: So you mentioned often you've mentioned some advising that you all do and how you're kind of taking a look at a practice, seeing where you Mm -hmm. can save money. How does what you're doing as an accountant differ from a financial planner? And do dentists need to have both?
1: In my opinion, they need to have both now that there is a trend in the cpa world where cpas are they're going to getting licensed and then wanting to manage assets in addition to doing the accounting and the tax and and i think the the trouble why we haven't done that is you you can't be everything to everybody and and i look at our our niche and what we do um you know financial planning is a totally separate discipline than than tax or even financial accounting. And so I I don't know. I'm just very cautious about wearing too many hats. Um, The financial planner, to answer your question very specifically, like my role as the dental CPA is there's really, if you kind of boil it down, there's two things we're trying to do. First and foremost, um, owning a business, it's difficult. It can be stressful and there's risk involved. And so to undertake that journey, it has to be worth it. You know, that, 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 that's the reward, you know, in our capitalist society, you, you know, you take risk and then there's the upside for the reward. Well, that, up, that reward is profit. And how we measure that is, is practice profitability. That has to be adequate and appropriate. So our mission is to make sure that that's happening. In other words, let's, let's make as much money as we can from this business. What, what does that look like? Well, for single doctor owner-operated practices, that profit margin needs to be 35 to 40% minimum. So that's step one. Let's make, let's make a, an appropriate amount of money you know, for, for what, what the businesses is, is, should be capable of providing. And then once we've made that money, now we want to hang on to as much of it as possible. Right? And that's tax planning. Right? And, and tax avoidance is perfectly legal. That's our obligation. There's a difference between tax avoidance and tax evasion, even though they kind of sound the same. Tax avoidance is we do that all day. We avoid as much tax as possible within the code, so that we can keep as much of that money as possible. And if we're successful in these two endeavors, then we're going to end up with this residual cash that needs to be distributed home. And as a business owner, we want to see lots of distributions. That's why why you go start a practice or buy a practice. So once we have that residual cash, we've distributed it, we've taken it home, that's where there's the the baton is handed off in my opinion to the financial planner. So they're going to take that money that you're now holding personally. And then they can decide, you know, are we going to invest that in stocks, bonds, the you know, real estate, whatever. Whatever whatever you want, however that dentist wants to build wealth. That that's I think the dividing line between the dental CPA and the financial planner, you know, we are going to help them earn and keep as much money as possible. And then once they have that money, then they can work with the financial planner to decide how they're going to save and and make those dollars work for them and make it grow. And I think those are two separate disciplines in my opinion.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Thanks for breaking it down for us. I also agree with everything you said as well. So for our dental students listening, do you have one piece of advice that comes to mind that you'd like to offer them?
1: You know, so uh, my world that I have visibility on it is practice owners. So when I'm I uh, uh probably the earliest time I'm in contact with with younger dentists is when you know they are typically associating at an office and they're wanting to get into ownership whether that's the full like de novo startup or they want to purchase a practice and there's pros and cons either way. So I would say going back to like a dental student, I would say my advice would be, I I would not, I would really think twice about going into ownership, like right out of the gate. Um, That's rare. I don't see it that often, but I would encourage um, the students to, you know, once, once they graduate, you know, associate somewhere, learn, learn as much as you can on someone else's ticket, so to speak. <laughs> and, and then, and I don't know what, what period of time that is, you know, a couple of years, i we've seen the whole spectrum, you know, um, doctors that train. you know, get into ownership real early. Maybe they associate a couple of years, maybe it's five or 10 years. I would say it's up to, uh, up, up to whatever works for that, that particular individual. But I can say, I think you can draw a correlation. Uh, With new business owners, if they've associated somewhere for a couple years and have just learned as much as they can during those years, you know, paying attention, how the the practice is running, what do they see that they like? What do they see that they don't like? um, Watch the current owner. Uh, There's a, you know, the the clinical skill set and the business owner skill set are completely different things. Watch how that owner, watch their leadership styles, watch their business management styles. Decide what you like, what you don't like. Maybe like, I really like that. That's something I would do. Or I can't believe this person said this in front of us. Like I would never say that. So just be a sponge. And then when you're just tired of the associating gig and you're ready to move into ownership, I would say, you know, start going down that path armed with all that knowledge you've absorbed and and kind of just circling back I think you can draw a correlation in success with new business owners if they've gone that route if uh, and I've I've seen a couple instances where new grads just go straight into ownership and it's a little more dicey Um, I just I like my advice would be just go somewhere be a sponge, learn as much as you can while someone else is paying the bills, and then with that knowledge, then go into ownership.
0: Kind of following up on that, do you think it's important for dental students to have their loans totally paid off from school before they go into buying a practice? Or you know, that would be depends? nice.
1: That'd be nice, but I think it's rare. <laughs> Most mm-hmm. all our clients I visit with have student loans. And so that and, and the reason I know that is because the question comes up you know, when they're doing well and they have some excess cash, if debt reduction is the strategy, it's like, well, which debt do we start with? And the answer is always distribute the money home and pay off the student debt. Um, most of the time, the doctors make too much money to obtain any type of, you know, deduction on the personal side for the the student interest. And so that that student debt is just an albatross around their neck, whereas the business debt is the interest is fully tax deductible. So at least the government's helping subsidize you know, the, the payment of that loan. So uh, another question that can come up as well, when you own a business, can you deduct the student loan as a business deduction? The answer is no, expressly forbidden in the tax code. It's not even a gray area. It's yeah, a, a red line, so to speak. So you cannot deduct student loans as a tax deduction. So it would be yeah, in a perfect world would love to go into ownership with no student debt, but I, I think that's rare. And so, it, and I wouldn't say having a student loan should hold you back. And it can be a little bit of a, a gut check, you know, if you're gonna take out a loan for a startup or practice acquisition, and you have the the student loan still, it can be a big number. Um, but the earning potential as a business owner is many times greater in my opinion, than as an associate. So it, it's okay. And then over time, if you build up some extra cash, then we can, can take out those student loans. But probably the long answer to your question there would would love to see no student debt. But I, I think that's, that doesn't happen very often unless somebody was, you know, perhaps a military doc, you know, where they had their, uh, their, their dental school paid for.
0: That makes a lot of sense. I expected that, but it was good to have some of the clarification about if people were run, wondering about write-offs and everything. Mm-hmm. So one thing that I am frequently thinking about is how an owner dentist can set their salary and how do you determine what mm-hmm. makes sense for like being in a different tax bracket perhaps or something like what's the best mm-hmm. way to go about that?
1: So, to, so first we'll start with a key concept on paying yourself as an owner. And it doesn't, it's kind of regardless of what, a, what, what, what the objectives are, the, 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 cruel reality, you know, as a business owner is that the business owners get paid last. So, um, you might say, well, I want to pay myself as an associate. I just had this visit with a, uh, this week with a doctor looking to buy a practice And his question to me was, well, you know, I, I have a certain amount of bills to pay and I need to, so I just, I'm going to want to just pay myself as an associate from the practice, you know, when I own it. And I said, that's great. There should be enough money for that, but just realize as a business owner, you get paid last. So if something breaks and you need to, you know, maybe buy a new sterilizer or, or whatever, um, you know, you, you can't distribute and take money home as a business owner that you don't have. So with a startup, obviously there's going to be a period of time where there just isn't going to be money to pay yourself. And even with an acquisition, you know, maybe, maybe we bought uh, a shell of a a practice that that failed or, or just never, never really took off. And you might need to fund it for a while or just, just kind of not, there won't be money to take home as an owner right in the very beginning. So first and foremost, yeah, owners get paid last. You can come up with whatever pay structure you want for yourself or how you want to do that. Um, But the owner doesn't get paid until all the bills are paid. Now, in terms of how to pay yourself, how to structure that pay, and we're talking salary, it's really important to understand a key concept here. When you own a business, you're going to have a legal entity. And in every state other than California, you know that entity, in my opinion, should be a limited liability company or some states will want it to be a professional limited liability company, a PLLC. They're the same thing. It's just in some states, if you're a doctor, uh, accountant, or attorney, professional service provider, they want it to be a PLLC. In California, you have to start as a corporation. That is your legal entity and it is important to realize that there's a difference between your legal entity and your tax classification two totally different things so if you're a pllc which is going to be most states and you, there's one owner which is most of the time we're talking you kind of owner operated dental practice uh that's going to be taxed as a sole proprietor right and as a sole proprietor, you do not go on salary as the owner. You take money home via, it's called a distribution or a draw. It means the same thing. It's just whatever cash is left in the practice, you just take that take that home. Take it straight home. If the practice is fully profitable, and what I mean by that is there's nice six-figure income for the owner. So I would say 200000 and up. Then the the better tax classification is S-corporation, right? So that PLLC stays a PLLC. You just elect to tax it different with the government. And that's a one-page one election that you know, we take care of for our clients and says, we're going to now tax this, this entity as an S-corporation. Then and only then do you go on W-2 salary as the owner. And that's simply for tax planning because as an owner of an S-corporation, you're have to. you going to pay your payroll taxes on the owner's salary, but then the residual distributions that you take are not subject to payroll taxes. And that's where that savings comes in with an S-corp. That only works if there's ample profit. So that's just a little bit of structure on, on how we take money home. So if someone's doing a startup and they're a PLLC, tax sole proprietor, and the practice starts generating some cash. You don't go put yourself on payroll um you just write yourself a check and that's something where you know talk to your talk to your CPA and they should help you with that we certainly will so um with that in mind we can talk about how to how to structure the dollar amounts okay but and i realize i just put out kind of a ton of content was was that was that clear do, do you have questions on on what i is there any points that you, that you think might help make that more understandable
0: i think that was pretty clear actually i appreciate okay. it yeah it was easy to follow
1: Okay, so now, so, so let's just, as an example, let's say somebody just started and they're a PLC, they're a sole proprietor, and we're finally, you know, we're to the point now where we got a pile of cash in the operating account and it's time to take some money home. Um, that is, in my opinion, there's a, there's a procedure here. And step one is we need to decide what is the no lower than balance to be in that operating account. The operating cash reserve. And we want that balance to have enough money where we can pay bills as they come in and not really have to stress about the cash, but you don't want too much money in there because I mean, let's face it, the doctor earned it. Let's, let's take some home. We don't want too much money in there. So you have to, you have to quantify what, what is that no lower than balance. And, 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 you know, some of that will be just a gut level feel as a business owner. You might say, you know what, if there's less than 50K in that account, I'm just not going to sleep well at night. You know, that that's part of it. But I think you can really dial that number in with some data. And the data we use to advise on that is what we call the break-even point of the practice. The break-even point, just like it sounds, is the amount of money you need to pay all the bills every month, pay all the employees, marketing, rent, all that. It's before any money comes home to the owner. We also have to include the full bank payment, the full loan payment in there um, so that you know the true cash requirement each month just to keep the doors open. With a startup practice, I can tell you right now, just on day one, that break even is usually 20 to 25K per month just to be open. Um, So once we know that break even, then we think about the cash reserve should be a multiple of that. Pre-COVID, uh, before the pandemic, our client average is about one to one and a half times break-even. So, if, if a practice say it's, say they're collecting eighty-five to ninety thousand a month on average, the break-even is fifty K. They would keep about fifty K in the bank account, fifty to maybe seventy-five, up to the owner to just decide what that is. Plant the flag, and that that's that's you know any money that accumulates over and above that set. Cash amount is fair game for distribution. Um, Post COVID, most practice owners are keeping a little more money in the bank just through this this crazy eighteen months we've been through. Um, they're keeping two and a half, three times in there, uh, I'd say on average. So what does that look like? As an example, let's let's just stick with that example I, I just had. We're collecting eighty-five k per month. We had a fifty k break even, and our the doctor's comfort zone for a cash reserve is say it's seventy-five. Like we talked on the phone. We said, yep, 75 is appropriate. We can just pay the bills when they come in. We don't have to stress about cash. And so at the end of the month, we log in to the bank and we see there's 100K in the operating account. And our no lower than amount is 75K we're comfortable with. What that means is there's 25 grand that is fair game to distribute out. So they could either write a check for 25,000, take that home. That's your monthly income. But keep in mind... You know, if there's something we're saving for, maybe there's a new piece of gear we've had on the to-do, and we and we, we don't want to finance; we just want to pay cash. And maybe that piece of gear costs ten thousand. Maybe it's okay. There's twenty-five k of extra cash. We're going to buy our piece of gear for ten, and then we're going to distribute fifteen. So that that's the process. That's what. And regardless of how the practice is taxed, um, at the end of every month. As a business owner, the bulk of your profit should come home via distribution, and it's simply going to be the difference between the cash that is accumulated and what the business owner's desired cash reserve is. Any excess cash, take it home.
0: So I would imagine if someone is doing a startup, they might be on that more safer side and leaving money in the bank possibly more than other mm-hmm. people that have these records of what they need to keep in reserves, I guess.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and my advice is when I'm talking to a doctor's thinking about a startup or, or maybe they have a, a project full, fully underway. All right, and we visit, um, I, I do share with them without really knowing much about their project, you know, I'm just certain that initial break-even is going to be somewhere between 20 and 25K. So, in my opinion, with a with a startup on day one in the bank account, they're going to want between fifty and seventy five thousand dollars in that bank account, and that is between two and three times their initial break even. Um, and that's something to think about when you're talking with the bank on the loan. Is you know that initial working capital can be funded by a cash injection from the owner savings or a lot of times the banks will work in, you know, they, they know the new business needs some working capital. And so maybe they'll, they'll have a, a provision in the loan to provide some working capital. But I, I believe um, very strongly that a new, a, a new startup on day one needs between 15 and 75 K that will provide a high uh, a level of comfort because trust me i mean the doctor's gonna have enough on their plate right in that first three months getting the practice going you don't want to be stressing about cash i have worked with doctors where they either didn't have the working capital in the loan or they were counting on some free rent and the project got delayed and now, now they're paying rent before they're open and it and it winds their working capital down. And so they're on day one, they're starting their practice with like $15,000 in the bank. And it is a total nightmare. It is a really stressful experience for those doctors because the only way to build that cash reserve is to, to not distribute profit. You know, you have to build it up, which means you're working for, as an owner, you're working without compensation for a while. And that's where that whole risk and mm-hmm. reward is. If we circle back to the very beginning of our conversation, that's why, you know, when you own a business, there has to be that, that appropriate reward. Cause sometimes you go through some hard times, you know, building that practice up. And I think employees sometimes might lose sight of that down the road. They see the doctor making a lot of money and say, well, isn't that nice? You know, why, how come they make that kind of money? Well, A, they went to dental school and made that investment to have that earning power, but also, as an owner, you, you might say, "Well, hey, remember back when the practice first started, I didn't get paid for six months. You know, it's risk and reward. Um, so, yeah, I would say, yeah, with a startup you, you want to have an ample amount of money, and I, in my opinion, it's about fifty to seventy five k. If someone's looking to buy a practice, it's sort of the same methodology if they' if they're buying that practice I, I've been talking about in my example. 85k per month with a 50k break even i think they'd want probably $50,000 in that bank account on day 1.
0: That is good and i appreciate the specific figures. I know that's one of my pet peeves when people are talking about the business aspects of dentistry and they're a little too vague. So i appreciate at least some real ballpark figures.
1: Oh sure and those those are very real figures we see that yeah. every day.
0: So While you were talking, I thought of a couple questions that again, have just kind of always been on my mind as a student. I honestly don't know too much about the business ownership or taxes. So when someone is purchasing a practice that already exists, so they're buying it from a different owner, how does that LLC get transferred to you? And if you're taking out a loan to be able to buy that practice, is that like a business? Does that go towards the business or is that like your own personal debt?
1: So when you buy a practice, you're you're not actually buying that the the previous doctor's entity. So all and you know, the vast majority, everyone, every deal I have seen over the last eleven years has been what's called an asset purchase agreement. So if you're looking at a practice and you're going to buy it, what you're really buying is you're buying that doctor's used equipment. You're purchasing a non-compete obligation from them so you don't buy their practice and they go set one up next door. And then you're buying their patient list, right? So that if we're going to boil that that asset purchase agreement down to three things, you're buying their their stuff, (laughs) you're buying their patients and you're buying a a non-compete from them. You're going to then take those assets that you just purchased and you're going to hold those and place those in your brand new PLLC that you just had formed and so those entity, those assets are now held in your company on the closing date the seller is going to lay off all their employees and then as the buyer you're going to simultaneously hire them as employees in your new brand new PLLC and then the business debt to answer your question say we got the loan from from like Wells Fargo um, that is going to be your that that brand new PLC is going to be kind of named on, that, on the loan paperwork there. And you're going to make that practice loan payment from the operating account of, the, of your brand new PLC. And the interest expense, of course, is fully deductible as a business expense within the, within the practice.
0: So for that process, what kind of professional would you be working with? Are you working with a lawyer, a financial planner? Yeah,
1: you need, I think as a as a buyer, you, in my opinion, you need a good attorney, a dental specific attorney that has helped with transitions, right? Because they're going to be able to form the entities, form the entity, the PLLC. And then they're going to be able to advise on the contract, you know, when, when it comes time to to reviewing that asset purchase agreement and providing advice, that that's that's practicing law. That is not something your accountant can do for you, not something a financial planner can do. So I think as from the buyer's perspective, you you need a good attorney that like us only works with dentists. And then they can help with the entities and help advise on that purchase agreement. Um, the seller, on the other hand, and, and realize that it's probably not not the core audience here. But the seller, you know, then they they should consider working, I think, with a broker because somebody's gonna you're gonna need an independent third party valuation, you know, to decide what that practice is worth and, and help. So they they likely want an attorney as well, but they, they're probably gonna you know bring a broker in also. But as the buyer. Yeah. You need to, to find a, find an attorney to set up the entity and help you review the contract.
0: If there are any dentists listening that are looking to get into ownership and go through this whole process, if they were interested in working with your accounting firm, do you have like recommendations for um, dental specific attorneys that you offer to your clients?
1: Yeah, certainly. I, you know, I know, I, I know a few, um, that I can, I can refer to, um, you know, we have a, a national client base, so the attorneys I know also kind of work, work coast to coast, and I, I can make some recommendations. Um, you know, over the years, I, I can help with uh, some due diligence. Um, we do not do uh, formal valuations. As I said, in the beginning, I just got to be careful about wearing too many hats. Uh, valuing a practice is kind of very specific. It's more than just a percentage of what they collect every year. I mean, you really got to go in and look and what, what's the facility like, what's the equipment worth? What's, you know, what is the, the composition of the patient base? Is it, is it Medicaid? Is it fee for service? There's a lot that goes into that valuation. So we, we don't, provide an opinion of value on the practice, but what I, what I can do and what I've done for years is if doctors looking at a practice, I'm very happy to look at the seller financial statements, you know, and based on what they're representing, you know, I can provide some reasonable expectations on income. And if there's any red flags I'm seeing, um, and I've, I've done that for years, you know, and my objective is, you know, I want to have a long-term relationship you know, if they go through with that purchase and buy it, I want to be their CPA and, so you know, support them year round month with monthly practice, profitability analysis and, and tax planning. So I can, I help with due diligence along the way, but I, I certainly do not replace the attorney or the valuation specialist.
0: For your um, accounting firm, do you foresee it to continue to grow? I know, um you were saying you have around like 20 other accountants working for you right now around the country. Do you see that mm-hmm. continuing to grow or are you going to kind of max out at a certain point?
1: No, we, we, we grow, uh, there's no max. Um, I, so the, with our company, there's, there's three owners. So I co-founded the firm with my dad, Ken, who's still very active in the firm. And then we, we brought, uh, our longtime tax manager, Courtney, on as a partner about four years ago, which has been tremendous. So there's three owners and, um, we have actually, we're up to closer to 30 employees. And so we just continue to scale and grow and there, there there's no limit, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll keep growing. We've been very disciplined, however, in really just staying in our lane, staying in our niche. Cause I get asked sometimes, well, what, you know, why don't you guys do this for, for veterinarian or, or or whatever, and I was like, "Well, I don't, I just don't know anything about those businesses. You know, I know dental practices inside and out. So we we stay like very strictly within our niche, and so we will continue to grow and scale and and hire hire the right people to to help us grow. And so we've we've enjoyed you know very steady growth, you know, over the last eleven years. And I think that's because we we do stay true. Our, our very specific mission. And, and we just tried to do one thing and try to do it really well and better than everyone else. So there's there's no limit. We're never going to say we're full. We're always going to keep, keep going.
0: Nice. That's good to know. Again, I was just curious. So I have one more question before we wrap up here, but just to get people's brains kind of thinking, can you share like one of your most commonly used areas for tax avoidance for practice owners?
1: So tax avoidance with practice owners, you know, the the big a big ticket item is what we've kind of talked about briefly already. And that is, you know, once a practice, what, you know, and it could be if you buy a practice that's already fully profitable, or if it's a startup, it's going to take a year or two to get it there. But, you know, managing that the tax classification is important because, you know, if when you have that PLLC we've been talking about, and let's say we start as a sole proprietor, which makes a ton of sense. That that's how you want to be taxed as a startup in the very beginning. Um, but the profit, so there's the, there's a couple ways that profit is taxed, right? All of our clients are have what's called a flow through entity or pass through, and I know people have kind of heard that terminology. All that means is is what a business tax return is for an S-Corp or partnership or sole proprietor is simply an information return. We're simply tabulating the taxable profit that practice produced during the year. That's going to flow through or pass through to the doctor's personal tax return, right? Their joint or or individual personal tax return. And that taxable profit's going to get listed on page one of the 1040 and we're going to add it up with all any other income and then they pay tax personally one time. So with the, that taxable income that gets tabulated on that business tax return, you're going to owe federal income tax, state income tax, if applicable, depending on what state you're in, but you also owe self-employment payroll taxes on that total amount. Now, when we're first starting out, it's, it's not necessarily material. As a sole proprietor, there's a lot more flexibility to deduct those first year losses, the equipment, all that big investment. But once you're up and running and we're practices making three, 400,000 in profit, which is very common, we see it all the time. Um, there is self-employment payroll tax due on that full 400,000. If we don't do something about it. And that's where that making that S election at the appropriate time can, can produce significant tax savings because as an S corporation we set that reasonable salary for the doctor, you pay your payroll taxes on that reasonable salary. And then the balance of the profit that's earned, you take home via distribution not subject to payroll taxes. That's significant tax savings that you gotta pay attention to it. You gotta set that salary at the reasonable appropriate level and it can yield some significant savings. So that's that's a big ticket item, step one. You know, we get into it with our clients. Um, There's many other things that can be done as a business owner. To avoid tax, um, home office, some auto deduction, uh, annual board meetings, there, there's lots of creative things that can be done to, to whittle away at that tax liability. But I'll, I'll, I would say this, Haley, This I'd say the big thing to keep in mind for the, for your your listeners, when we're thinking about, you know, as a business owner, avoiding tax, I'll just be very upfront and say, look, there's no magic bullets out there. And there are some unscrupulous tax people out there that will, will prey on that perception that there's some, there's some big secret out there. And only I know it. And your account probably doesn't know it, but I know the big secret and we're going to save all, you know, and that is total BS. Mm-hmm. There are no secrets in the tax code. The tax code, Internal revenue code is probably the most researched document in history, right? <laughs> Everybody knows what can be done, right? There's no big obscure structure. Um, some some crazy thing. If there, if that did exist, I would certainly do that for myself. All right. But that doesn't exist. How you go about achieving substantial tax avoidance is you have to do multiple strategies every year. And, it, and you, the accountant can't just do it all for, it, for you, right? The, the strategies that have to be executed at the, at the owner level. For example, if we say, look, you need, to, you need a board meeting for your S-Corp. So go take a four-day trip somewhere. We'll name your spouse as an officer or the entity and just have the whole thing be tax deductible. And it's a trip you would probably take anyway, but let's just make the whole thing tax deductible. Like we can recommend that, but ultimately the doctor has to do it. That's, that's one example. How you save big on taxes is you have to do each and every one of those strategies and you have to do them every year. Each strategy is going to take a bite out of the tax liability. It's not going to be a windfall in taxes, but it's going to help. And then at the end of the year, once you've executed all those strategies and you add them all up in the aggregate, that is how you get to your big number. So that is how tax savings is achieved. It's not some just magic that the accountant pulls out and says, I'm the only one that knows this, that that's total nonsense. You have to be disciplined and you have to do it. You have to do it all every year. And when you hire a CPA, you know, to help with taxes, you know, what you're really, what you're really hiring is somebody that knows these strategies and it, the information's out there, right? We, we all subscribe to professional resource materials, just like, the, just like doctors. So the, those strategies are out there. You want to hire somebody that's going to do them. And going to help you with them. But that's, that is how you go about tax savings.
0: Well, thank you so much for all of that insight today. I know I learned a ton, and I'm sure most of my listeners did as well. Is there anything else you want to share with the listeners before we wrap up?
1: You know, I, I think we've had a good discussion. Um, I, I would say that, you know, if, if your listeners are thinking about, like, it, it's intriguing, like, you know, do I want to own a business? i would say that you know there, the income potential as a business owner will always i think will always eclipse earning potential as an associate um a, a really good friend of mine um bought a practice last year had worked as an associate for a long time um and decided that the time was right to move into ownership, bought a practice and it was a nice practice paid, you know, good amount of money for it, but in the, and, and he purchased it last fall. Right. So his first month of ownership was September in the last four months of 2020, he made more money in that four months than he ever made as an associate. And he's absolutely killing it this year. But he 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 went down that path. He is he had associated for a long time. He paid attention to how those places were run, what he liked, what he didn't like, and so he was very capable. And you know, when he stepped into ownership, it's, it's been run very well, and he's enjoyed a lot of success. So I tell that story that you know definitely associate in my opinion somewhere for a few years, be a sponge, and then if you're up for it. You know, if business ownership sounds appealing, the rewards are there. I mean, they are. I see it every day. They're the the, poten- the income potential much higher as, a, as an owner. So, I guess that that's the the last thing I'll, I'll leave you with.
0: Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate everything.
1: No, it's my pleasure. I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me.